scripture lesson this morning. There are two passages that I'll be reading. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22, and then Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would use your word as you have promised, that you would come and meet us in our weakness. And where we declare, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. So help us this day that our faith would be strengthened by your word, that you would direct us in the truth and direct us unto Christ, our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, we, ha- we all have baptism on the brain. It's in our thoughts. It's a reality we've witnessed this morning, even as it was demonstrated before us with the baptism of Selah just a short while ago. And certainly the baptismal liturgy speaks to what's happening in regards to baptism, even as it's an expression of faith on the part of the parents in keeping with God's covenant promises to us and to our children. God's covenants include children. Whether the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, etc., none of these excluded children, and neither are they excluded in the New Covenant. Now, perhaps the simplest illustration of this is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, who are saints? 
those who are holy, those who have sanctuary access. Then later in chapter 6, what do we read? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, what does this mean? That the children in the church in Ephesus were considered saints, and that they have a relationship with Jesus, even as they're called to obedience in the Lord, particularly as it relates to the fifth commandment. See, Paul wouldn't address them in this way if they weren't part of the covenant people of God, if they were outsiders looking in. No, they're, they're part of the church. They're members of the body of Christ. They're in union with Jesus, the reality to which baptism testifies. Now, this morning I realize we're switching gears a bit, having really just gotten started into our study of Exodus. But I thought it might be good for us to consider the sacrament of baptism, even as there's some overlap with our study of the liturgy in Sunday school, uh, this morning's lesson in particular. Now, we can rightly think of baptism in relation to the type of definition that we find in the dictionary, even as Merriam-Webster defines it as a Christian sacrament marked by ritual use of water and admitting the recipient to the Christian community. And certainly that's the case with Selah's experience this morning, as we all witnessed. Of course, baptism can also be applied to those who profess Christ later in life and are baptized to the new life that is lived in Him. Another definition of baptism is an act, experience, or ordeal by which one is purified, sanctified, initiated, or named. You may have heard of the expression baptism by fire, which conveys that idea, the idea that someone has to go through a difficult ordeal with little or no preparation or circumstances come upon him or her suddenly. But even this more general usage reflects that baptism does something, that it isn't empty, that it can even have a transformative effect. This type of imagery is often found in literature and movies, where a character goes through a baptism of some kind and comes out changed as a result. You know, next time you're watching a movie and and it rains or snows, or someone ends up underwater, or in the water for some reason, well, it's quite possible there's a symbolic baptism taking place in that moment. It's the case in Spider-Man 3, Shawshank Redemption, Walk the Line, Nanny McPhee, just to name a few. You know, now, one of the connections that I made this morning in the Sunday school class is how the absolution from sin is connected to baptism and that the absolution serves as a weekly reminder of our baptism and should be a great encouragement to our faith. And so let's spend a little bit of time considering what Peter and Paul have to say to us in the respective texts that were just read, hopefully expanding our understanding of this sacrament that's been given to us by our Savior, this means of grace, which is a sign and seal of His covenant of grace. We'll begin with Peter since he wrote first, and we'll not be spending any significant time on detailing the spirits in prison mentioned in verse 19, except to say that Peter is referring to the unfaithful in the line of Seth as recorded in Genesis 6, who intermarried with the daughters of men, the line of Cain. Noah, herald of righteousness, a preacher of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaimed the truth to them, called them to repentance, but they persisted in their rebellion and were destroyed by the flood and are now in prison in hell. And this is my estimation. Uh, In my estimation, it's the most biblically consistent understanding of the text, especially in light of what we find in 2 Peter and Jude, that also makes similar references to these events. But let's step back for a moment and consider some of the broader context And the reason Peter says what he says. His teaching here is is for the encouragement of his hearers, specifically in relation to suffering. Back in chapter 2, Peter emphasized Christ's humiliation, 
But now here in chapter 3, he takes this teaching a step further, setting forth Christ's exaltation. Jesus is resurrected, verse 18, and ascended in glory at the right hand of the Father, verse 22. These truths frame this entire section. And the implication of Peter's teaching is that as you share in Christ's sufferings, as you suffer in this life as he suffered in this life, so you will be like him in resurrected glory. In the face of your accusers, remember Jesus, what he has done and what he's accomplished for you. Jesus is the victor. He has conquered. He's a triumphant king. And Peter ties all of this into baptism and mentions that only a few, that is eight persons, were saved. Of all the multitude of the earth in Noah's day, only eight were rescued, profoundly in the minority. Very likely that was the case for Peter's audience as well. Immersed in the Roman world and all of the immorality and paganism that surrounded them, they could identify with the circumstances of Noah and his family. The faithful may uh, may sometimes be few, but that does not negate God's ability or His purposes. Remember that the number eight symbolizes new creation, seven plus one. It's connected to Sunday, the Lord's Day, as the day of resurrection, marking uh, a new beginning in time. The Lord's Day is the eighth day, and traditionally, baptismal fonts are eight-sided, which is not without significance. In Noah and his family, God is working out his salvific purposes and is beginning again with eight people. And how does he save them? He saves them through water. In verse 21, Peter makes a connection that we might not be as quick to make and which might seem totally irrelevant to everything he's mentioned thus far, but he says, and corresponding, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. Now, without trying to explain away the text, let's appreciate that Peter is making a powerful connection between the water ordeal of Noah and Christian baptism. Don't miss that. And we need to have our understanding of baptism deepened by the biblical text so that baptism isn't, well, it, so that isn't just a cute ceremony by which a baby is brought into the visible body of Christ or when an older child or adult through profession of faith actually or officially becomes part of the church. We should understand that this sacrament, we should understand the sacrament as another event of God's salvific acts as pictured through redemptive history. See, Peter explicitly states that as Noah and his family were saved through water, so you are saved through baptism. In fact, Noah's baptism is a pointer, an antitype to your baptism. It prefigures the baptism instituted by Jesus. And it's not only Peter that talks like this. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul states, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Israel's crossing the Red Sea is another water ordeal of significant proportion in redemptive history. This was their baptism. Israel passing through the Red Sea was a baptism. And as a slight aside, did the sons of Israel leave their children in Egypt? No, of course not. They were part of the all who were baptized. What's more, based on the language of Psalm 77, Israel walked through the Red Sea dry shod between the walls of water, yet Asaph seems to indicate that it was raining on them uh, from above. So at the very least, we need to begin to understand baptism from this, uh, what we could call redemptive historical perspective. And this isn't lost in our Reformed heritage. 
The Belgic Confession makes this exact connection when it draws a correlation between baptism and the blood of Christ, referring to him as our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is, the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. Now let's, let's pause for a moment and, and set in place a clarification. I am not suggesting, nor am I saying, that the Bible teaches that the mere rite of baptism is somehow magical, and therefore someone is saved for all eternity because they were baptized. Not at all. You know, a pap, pastor or a priest uh, couldn't take a super soaker and spray a bunch of people in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, in, the, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and declare them all saved, and they're, they're automatically saved. But something we do need to do is clearly distinguish between water and baptism. Now, why is that? Because we're not simply talking about water. We're talking about baptism, a sacrament given to us by our Savior, and one that we are commanded to perform. Baptism involves a particular use of water authorized by Jesus, and baptism is always done in connection with the Word. Therefore, the question we ought to be asking isn't what does water do, but what does baptism do as ordained by God in the Bible? So do we, do we take God at His word and the manner in which He instructs our faith or not? Are we remaining honest to our doctrinal standards, even as set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith, where we read, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. When it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Now, perhaps some of you have been in a setting where you've heard more about what baptism doesn't mean. In other words, it's not the Roman Catholic view of baptism, with little emphasis upon what is really happening in baptism and what it signifies. But we, we want to think biblically about this, and we should want to think biblically about it, and in so doing are returning to the larger stream of the teaching of our Reformed heritage regarding this sacrament. You know, we should be able to say with the Apostle Peter that baptism saves us. How, can, how and why can we say this? Because what is, true, uh, what is true of us as a result of baptism, as a result of God using this sacrament as he said, he will use it. Listen to what Scripture tells us as a, as, tells us is, a true, is true as a result of baptism, even some of which we heard earlier in the liturgy. We are united to the crucified, buried, and risen Christ. We are forgiven and cleansed. We are regenerated and renewed. We are buried and resurrected with Christ. We are joined to the body of Christ, clothed in Christ, and ordained as priests with access to the heavenly sanctuary. And here Peter tells us that because we are baptized, we are saved. We are delivered. We've been rescued. We've gone through our own exodus from the bondage of sin. Just as Noah and his family were brought into a new life, into a new world through their baptismal events, so you have been brought into a new life, a new world, at your baptism. And let's be clear, God is the agent, and baptism is the instrument by which he has chosen to bring this about. Baptism has all of this meaning and significance, because God has given it this meaning and significance. When baptism is viewed through the eyes of faith, it readily embraces all that is signified in it. See, it doesn't try to explain baptism away and make it the barest of symbols. As the Scots Confession of 1560 states, 
And so we utterly condemn the vanity of those who affirm the sacraments to be nothing else than naked and bare signs. No, we assuredly believe that by baptism we are engrafted into Christ Jesus to be made partakers of his righteousness by which our sins are covered and remitted. And also that in the supper rightly used, Christ Jesus is so joined with us that he becomes the very nourishment and food of our souls. See, faith glories in baptism because baptism exalts Christ and his accomplished work. As Peter testifies in this very passage, that baptism saves through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a public event that represents and confirms our union with Jesus Christ in his saving work. It signifies that we are participants in his victory over death and darkness. And as his people, we are called to live in accordance with the new life that is begun at our baptism. Peter notes that this baptism isn't for the removal of fleshly defilement, as did the cleansing rites of the old covenant. Rather, Christian baptism acts as a pledge to God of sound mindfulness of his will, as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? Well, Peter appears to have a number of allusions to baptism throughout his letter even to the point that some scholars contend the entire letter is about living out your baptism. And that could be. But within the context and thrust of the letter as a whole, the saving power of baptism entails aspects of transformation, identification with the suffering and resurrected Christ, incorporation into a holy community, protection by Heavenly Father, and commitment to a new way of life subordinated to the will of God. Furthermore, this demonstrates that Christian baptism is greater than the cleansing rites of the Old Covenant. In Christian baptism penetrates beyond flesh and its defilements to cleanse the conscience. Now, kind of wrap all of that together and see how that's a pledge to God, an appeal to Him. What Christ has done and what He is going to work through you and the freedom that it gives you as you live in Him. And what powerful comfort this was to a people who weren't welcome in their own society and called to live according to a different standard. And what a comfort it is to us today as well. And this, this, this truth is glorious. Union with Christ, inaugurated at your baptism, is a marvelous thing. You know, because you've been baptized, what is true of Jesus is true of you. And I hope that you will, you will think of baptism more and more in this way and find encouragement and strength for your faith when you do. And when you hear the absolution each week in the liturgy, when you hear that your sins are forgiven, remember your baptism, which points you again to Jesus, your Savior. Well, with these things in mind, let's, let's turn our attention to what Paul teaches in Romans 6. And we'll not be surprised to find some overlapping teaching here, as he also expounds upon baptism. And before we begin to look at some specifics, I want to draw your attention to some overarching themes in this section of Romans. As one New Testament scholar has observed, Romans 5 through 8 has echoes of the Exodus. That Exodus-related themes are present in the progression of these chapters. In chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, he speaks to the state of sin and death in Adam that has been overturned by Christ. In other words, God's people have been freed from bondage. In chapter 7, Paul teaches about the effects of the law and how it relates to sin. What did God do with his people in the wilderness at Sinai? Well, he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. Then in chapter 8, there's the language of new creation. Life lived in the Spirit, the adoption that is ours, and the glory we anticipate. This should remind us of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land to which Israel was led by the Holy Spirit glory cloud. So what's missing? 
What significant event related to the Exodus did we skip? Well, the Red Sea crossing. What do we find in Romans 6? Baptism. A water ordeal. And the Red Sea crossing was the definitive event that indicated that Israel was no longer under Egypt's oppression and rule. That they were truly delivered from bondage to Pharaoh. Israel's identity was no longer one of slavery, but of freedom that the Lord achieved on their behalf. Well, the same is true with baptism, as Paul describes. And remember the question he's answering at the beginning of the chapter. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, let, let's stay with the analogy. Could Israel continue to live like slaves in Egypt after God rescued them? No. And when some of them complained and wanted to go back to Egypt, perhaps we can see more clearly what a sheer act of rebellion that was against the Lord. Well, Paul's argument is, is similar. As someone who had been, has been baptized, as someone who has been redeemed, you don't go on living as though you haven't been, as though you are still in bondage to sin. No, because you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Christ and therefore baptized into His death. And since you've been baptized into His death, then your sin has been fully dealt with, your redemption has been achieved. But not only does your baptism picture that you're joined to Christ in his death, but what does Paul argue in the next breath? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus signifies that you're called to live a new life. And your baptism is the event that indicates that you're called to live in this reality. Baptism means a change in status. You are no longer in sin, but in Christ. The old self was crucified so that you might no longer be enslaved to sin, verse 6. In Jesus, you've been set free from sin, verse 7. If you were to keep reading in 1 Peter and go from chapter 3 into chapter 4, you'll find that Peter basically follows the same logic. You know, Peter and Paul are agreed. There must be something to it. And as baptism marks our union with Christ in His death, so it also marks our union with Him in life and the hope of the resurrection. Think of it like this. When someone gets married, they may not feel very different, but a change has occurred to which they must now conform. Promises have been made. Those promises can be broken, but they can't be unmade. As a Christian, you can't get unbaptized. The Israelites couldn't uncross the Red Sea. You know, don't try to go back to Egypt. Rather, look ahead and by faith, make your way to the Promised Land. In his commentary on Romans, John Calvin wrote this. The death of Christ is efficacious to destroy and demolish the depravity of our flesh and His resurrection to the effect the renovation of a better nature to affect the renovation of a better nature and that by baptism we are admitted into participation of this grace. This foundation being laid, Christians may very suitably be exhorted to respond to their calling. Farther, it is not to the point to say that this power is not apparent in all the baptized. For Paul, according to his usual manner, where he speaks of the faithful, connects the reality and the effect with the outward sign. For we know that whatever the Lord offers by the visible symbol is confirmed and ratified by their faith. In short, he teaches what is the real character of baptism when rightly received. So he testifies to the Galatians. 
that all who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, Calvin, who was well-versed in the writings of the early church fathers, he isn't really saying anything new. In the 4th century, uh, Jerusalem, Cyril, in his post-baptismal instruction, explained to the newly baptized, By this action you died and you were born, and for you the saving water was at once a grave and the womb of a mother. In relation to baptism, Ambrose stated, Christ died to sin and lives for God, so you also must die to the past pleasures of sin by the sacrament of baptism and rise again by the grace of Christ. In his small catechism, Martin Luther posed these questions and answers. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we we should challenge ourselves. Do we think of baptism in these terms? Are these realities and images clearly placed in the view of our faith? William Willimon remarked, Baptism is nothing less than death and nothing more than the creation of a new being who lives by a radically different system of obedience, servanthood, and community. Behind every baptism is the baptism of Jesus, his death and resurrection, which opened up the new age. And we have to consider all that that we have in Christ by virtue of our baptism. It's, It's not a small thing. It's not an empty thing. Now consider the truth that baptism has the blessing of Christ. And when met with faith in the work of the Holy Spirit, it is an effectual means of salvation. It really is an instrument that Jesus uses to bring you to himself at the last, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus has given baptism to his church for benefit and blessing, and we should praise him for it. Still more, we should remember what it means to be baptized, that we are in union with Christ, that our faith looks to Him even in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of suffering. Because as you look to Him, you know that the suffering is in this life only. And as you look to Him now, where does your faith find Him? What What does Peter tell us? At the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, and who is reigning over all even now. And you can be assured that you will join Him there. That's where the, the, apostles, well, the apostles direct your faith. That's what you are to understand in your baptism, your own water ordeal that now saves you. And I trust we can see and hear the, the beauty and power of, of these words and readily clear by faith that we have been saved by baptism. You know, step, step back and consider it again. Such a salvation involves death. The theme of judgment is present. And Noah and his family were saved through water, eight people, but the rest of the world's population perished. Moses and all of Israel and the mixed multitude were saved through the Red Sea, but Pharaoh and his chariot army were destroyed. Judgment and death are also pictured in baptism, even as Paul intimates in Romans 6, or as we read elsewhere in Colossians 2. But who has suffered judgment for us? Jesus upon the cross. Jesus in his being crucified and buried. We're united to that death which is achieved at baptism. 
That's when that union takes place. And to be baptized is to be set apart for a life of daily dying to self, putting off the old and putting on the new. You know, follow, follow Paul's logic in, in Colossians 3. After you get through Colossians 2 and all he has to say about baptism, follow him into Colossians 3 and this is what he argues. This is to follow Jesus in the way of the cross, even as he describes his death as a baptism in Mark 10. As one writer puts it, to be baptized is to be condemned to die. It is dress rehearsal for the last day of your life as well as for every day in which we must die to all that would make us less than God wants for us. Baptism is also resurrection practice. Between our death and baptism and our next death at the end of our earthly life, we live in the hope that the same God who raised us from the waters of baptism will raise us again, pulling us forth from the tomb like newborn babes from the womb. We live in confidence which comes from baptism because we have already been through a trial run of our death and resurrection. We do not fear death because we need not fear what we have already done. So brothers and sisters, it's for us to embrace these truths by faith. Know them to be true of you because of what God's Word tells you. And the promises that are yours in Jesus, your Savior and King. Be reminded week after week what your baptism means. And it's saving power through God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As you confess your sins and hear again the declaration that you're forgiven. And when death presents itself to you, whether in the loss of a loved one, or in disease, or even in the prospect of your own death, take comfort and offer comfort, as is fitting, that you are baptized into Christ. But what if you have doubts now? What, what if your faith is shaky or, or maybe you think it's almost non-existent or that of a single candle flickering in the wind? What if you think, well, everyone's, everyone else's faith seems to be so much stronger than mine? Or maybe something has happened in your life that causes you to question the Lord's goodness. Maybe there's a why that goes unanswered and you're struggling to come to terms with it. What can you do? Well, remember your baptism and understand that because of your baptism, you're united to Christ. Consider again what He has done for you. He cried out why on the cross. He understands. Look to His experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. He also understands the struggle and He endured that for you. This Savior, this Jesus can be trusted even in and especially in the midst of suffering, whatever form it takes, because He knows it already having walked this way ahead of you. Your baptism unites you to Him. Now, for quite a number of you, you don't remember the day you were baptized being only an infant, as was the case earlier with Selah. Someone else has to tell you about it. Maybe some pictures were taken, and you can look at them, or there's a video you can watch of it. But likely, your mom or dad are the ones to tell you about it. But that doesn't make it any less real. And you too are called to remember your baptism, to understand your identity in Christ, and that you're in union with Him. And parents, just as the father of Matthew Henry remarked about grabbing his children by their baptism, so we can do the same. 
And in our present culture that's saturated with identity confusion, be all the more ready and willing to tell your children what's true of them in Christ. To remind them of the life of obedience to which they're called in the Lord. Don't hesitate to declare to them who they are in Jesus because of their baptism. Remind them that they've been ushered into this new life that's truly worth living in communion with Jesus, their Savior and Lord, with the true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That a high and holy calling has been placed upon them, even a royal calling as those who bear the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's precisely for this that that we have been saved. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have adopted us as your very own and given us your name in the waters of holy baptism. You have generously poured out upon us your Holy Spirit through your Son, our only Savior, Jesus Christ. By the washing of the water with your word, we have been united with him in his death. Just as surely do we have a share in his resurrection and his never-ending life. For his sake you have called us beloved children and declared to us to be well-pleasing in your sight. For all of this we give you thanks and praise. Return us always to the saving waters of our holy baptism and thereby drown and destroy the old Adam within us. By your word and Holy Spirit bring us daily to contrition and repentance And by your free and full forgiveness of our sins, strengthen and sustain our faith and lift us up with your dear Son to that new life that shows forth your praise. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.